Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 2nd, 2010, and my guest is George Selgin of the University of Georgia and the author, along with William Lestraps and Lawrence White, of a recent Cato Institute working paper entitled, Has the Fed Been a Failure? Question mark. George, welcome back to Econ Talk. It's nice to be back, Gross. I want to start by reminding listeners that you can follow me on Twitter at Econ Talker, Econ Talker. And my Twitter feed, I talk about upcoming guests on Econ Talk, sometimes comment about the podcasts, and occasionally uh, make observations about the world around us, limited, of course, to 140 characters. But if you uh, are a Twitter person, Econ Talker is the way to follow uh, me and Econ Talk. Now, on today's conversation, uh, our topic today, George, is the paper I just mentioned Has the Fed Been a Failure? Uh, I put the question mark in there. Uh, which is in the title of the paper. Of course, one could also put an exclamation point at the end of the title. It would not be a traditional way to title a um, a paper like that. But the, the question is whether the, the address of the paper is whether the Fed has improved economic performance since its establishment in 1913. The mainstream view, at least until recently, is of course the Fed has improved economic performance. As a lender of last resort, it's eliminated the bank runs and panics of the 19th century. And while its early years were marred by the Great Depression, once monetary economics was better understood, the Fed was able to smooth the business cycle. We had the great moderation, great prosperity, and you and your co-authors disagree. So let's start with the role of the Fed as the lender of last resort. Hasn't that been a good thing? Wasn't the 19th century this tumultuous uh, set of bank panics and bank runs that we don't, we don't have to worry about anymore? So what's the, uh, what's the evidence on that issue? Well, first of all, the 19th century was marred by bank panics and runs. Uh, but uh, it's important to realize that the few studies that try consistently to account for panics find that uh, until the bank holiday of 1933, uh, panics were not less frequent or less severe uh, than they had been before the establishment of the Fed. So you, if you look at the Fed's early years, you find, uh, if anything, uh, an increase in panics and an increase in severe panics, although it's true that, all, that uh, the majority of these occurred during those last three years of the period in question in the, the banking panics of the 1930s. There were about five of them in all, and uh, including the most severe ever. Afterwards, you don't have panics uh, uh, to the same degree as before. But as we argue in our paper, what really brought panics to a halt for a while was, first of all, the RFC, which uh, was bought tremendous amounts of bank stocks in the uh, period following the closure of the banks in March 1933. What's, and that? Then, What's course, the RFC stand for? FDIC and the uh, FSLIC, by providing deposit insurance, eliminate uh, what had become a more, one of the more important proximate causes of, of uh, panic before the 30s. 
what, uh, before 1933. What does the RFC stand for? What is that? Reconstruction Finance Corporation. That's a New Deal. Uh, it's actually a Hoover New Deal agency, uh-huh. and uh, it's it is unfortunately uh, not well appreciated uh, that it was far more instrumental than the Fed was in allowing the banking system to be reopened after the National Bank holiday without renewed uh, withdrawals and panic. Uh, and there was another thing, of course, that was at least as influential, Russ, and that is that uh, the uh, withdrawal of gold from the banking system was suspended by executive order during the bank holiday. And uh, the big run that uh, started at the end of February 1933 and continued to the time of the national holiday was mainly a run on gold because people feared devaluation. Of course, once they couldn't get gold anymore, uh, that took that motive away uh, for uh, running on the banks. Let's talk about uh, bank runs generally just in, in in the in the abstract, some of the economics uh, there. So I'm a depositor in a bank, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> I I put my money in the bank with the promise the bank will do two things. It will pay me some interest along the way until I ask for it again, and when I ask for it, it will be there. The bank in turn, in order to pay that interest, keeps uh, a, a non-100% amount of the deposits on hand of – in the actual bank, they take the rest, they lend it out, and they earn money as a result. And they're an intermediary because they're taking my money and lending it for me, letting me earn the interest. The risk, though, is, of course, what if everybody on the same day showed up to get their money out? It wouldn't be there, as George Bailey explains in It's a Wonderful Life. It's in people's houses and other businesses that the banks have lent money to. They're waiting to get for that money to be paid back. And there's no reason to think that everyone would show up on one day unless suddenly people decide that maybe they won't be able to get their money out. And that's where the idea of a bank run or a bank panic occurs. It's not just a bad piece of luck that people suddenly all at the same time want their money out. It's that people all of a sudden have some insecurity or uncertainty or fear that the bank is not solvent. So talk about what happened before FDIC insurance before and before the Fed in the 19th century – that led to these uh, runs, and how did did the market respond to them uh, without the Fed and without the FDIC insurance? Well, first of all, Russ, uh, it's important to note that even though a lot of economists are fond of theories according to which people run on banks just because of fear, just because they panic, the historical record uh, overwhelmingly shows that bank runs in the absence of insurance, have tended to be runs on banks that were in danger of failing, and not because of the runs, but because of bad loans. So it wasn't animal spirits, it to was, coin a phrase. People just suddenly right. Animal spirits anxious. are much overrated as a factor in historical bank runs. Uh, usually people run on banks that turn out either to have been on the verge of insolvency at the time of the run, or heavily involved with other banks that were in that situation so that there was at least an indirect basis for fearing that the banks were in trouble. Uh, and that's true also in, in U.S. experience. If you, uh, in, indeed, in the U.S., uh, runs of, and panics have been much more common than they have been in, in other countries. And what's even more revealing is 
if you look at different banking systems uh, in the 19th century, especially when they tended to be different, because today they're all more or less the same as far as the role of central banks in insurance, you find that runs and panics were a much bigger problem in the more heavily regulated systems, and the U.S. is at the top of that list among industrialized nations at the time. And uh, when you go to systems that were relatively less regulated, you find that panics were either unknown or infrequent. Why would regulation encourage uh, panics? Well, uh, let's take the U.S., since regulations there did the most harm. The, uh, the kinds of regulations I'm talking about included, for example, restrictions on branch banking. Most state chartered banks couldn't branch in the U.S. Uh, there were some exceptions. National banks couldn't branch at all uh, until the McFadden Act of 1927 allowed them to branch only in those state jurisdictions where the state banks could branch, so that didn't make much of a difference. The lack of branch banking alone made for a system of very weak banks. Fragile. Lots of them. So let, so the idea there would be, the argument there would be that if I'm a standalone bank and I can't branch out geographically, I'm in one place, then I am at the mercy of economic forces in that one geographical area. So if there's, a, say, a factory layoff there that significantly affects the homeowners in that area, they won't be able to pay their mortgages back, and as a result, my uh, loans won't, will, will go bad, and I may have trouble honoring my promises. Exactly. That, that would be the argument, right? Yes, and uh, it's, it really comes from the first principle of finance that – if you want eggs. to yeah. have a, a safe portfolio and avoid insolvency, you need to be able to, to diversify. And in day, those days when banks could not buy and sell loans as they can do today and when there weren't very many marketable securities out there besides uh, uh, federal ones, the, uh, the fact is that uh, banks were heavily dependent on the success of the firms in the local economy, firms and farms, I should say. Yeah, and so right. when you had local shocks, they relatively easily succumbed to those shocks. And runs were often in response to the perception that banks were in danger of failing or that some local banks had already failed, which was a good predictor that others were in trouble. So what was the argument, continue to digress because this is, is interesting to me, We've this issue of branch banking uh, – also called unit banking is the absence of branch banking, right? So that's yes, the, the that's term. Right. Um, what was the public choice or even the non-public choice argument there? What was the – what was – what explains why we passed those, that, those restrictions, why that was passed? Well, of course uh, – uh, What was the public argument be- and what was the underlying perhaps public choice reality? It has to do with the the manner in which uh, banking uh, was uh, uh, treated as a business. Unlike other businesses, historically, uh, you couldn't start a bank w- uh, with a general incorporation procedure, and uh, at least that was the case uh, universally until uh, 1937. And so you had to get a specific act of the legislature to get permission to get a bank. And this banking was thus a, a government privilege, that was very jealously uh, guarded, and uh, every banker who succeeded uh, would line up and oppose the entry of other banks, particularly in their town. So this created a tradition 
of uh, restricting bank charters to unit banks in individual towns, uh, and uh, that was the tradition uh, that prevailed uh, until the 1990s. Um, now, from the established unit bankers... Nin- 1990s or yes, 1890s? Yes, believe it or not. From the estab- an established unit banker's point of view, it was a no-brainer to want to keep other banks from being able to compete in their territory. Uh, they particularly feel, feared uh, invasion by the New York banks because uh, a bank that was in New York, first of all, had access to that central money market and so had a competitive advantage by being there, but then could for perhaps profitably branch into the rest of the country. And conversely, uh, 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 unit bankers in the country didn't expect that they could get a foothold in New York, so uh, opening up branch banking wouldn't give them a symmetrical advantage. But you're, are you suggesting that if, that if I lived in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1850, I only had one bank to choose from? Oh, no. Uh, it, in, in major cities, Russ, over time, uh, the number of banks grew. Actually, in Ohio, you might not have had much of a choice because for many years back then, they had a state monopoly. But in some cities, you would have had a choice. It all depended on the attitude of the state banking legislators. And, of course, uh, I mentioned this before, you, you had a choice, but within those choices, they were only in wherever they happened to be physically. So They were all a, unit banks a successful, with very few exceptions. Yeah. So a successful bank that wanted to open a branch on the other side of town to compete with a, uh, another successful existing bank would not be able to. It would have a hard time, especially in certain parts of the country. But there was another thing contributing to this support for unit banking, which was best summarized, I think, by Bray Hammond in his wonderful book about banking before the Civil War. But it, I may be misquoting him, but I remember reading the quote somewhere. The attitude uh, was that banks are dangerous and monopolistic, therefore we should have as few of them as possible. Ah, yes. <laughs> so this, this was, this was the prevailing <laughs> attitude uh, of the public not of the bankers themselves. So when you combine this, the vested yeah. interest of established unit bankers with this prevailing view that banks are monopolistic and so therefore we should have as few as possible, what you got was a persistent uh, unit banking structure that, as I said, was only finally completely broken down by the reform of the 1990s. So going back now, coming back to our question on the Fed, uh, your your answer earlier was, if I understand it correctly, is that the lender of last resort aspect of the Fed, the fact that the Fed is has a window that a banker can go to 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 get liquidity, was not an important ender of the bank run phenomenon. Rather, that was the that was ended by the provision of of uh, deposit insurance, at least as a panic stopper. What role did the Fed play? What role has the Fed played as lender of last resort? Is that important? What's the justification, and what's its benefits or costs uh, in a world with the Fed rather than a world without a lender of last resort? Well, so the Fed has acted as a lender of last resort on a number of occasions. Uh, uh, Well, I should say it has acted as an emergency lender, uh, but not as a classical lender of last resort necessarily on those occasions. I'll explain what I mean by that. It did do some last resort lending during the crises of the early 1930s, in February 1932, for example, but only to member banks. It, it, it did not 
see itself as responsible for other banks, and that left a lot of banks uh, uh, in the in in the cold. Uh, afterwards, uh, it tended to play uh, a, an emergency lending role, increasingly starting in the 70s and uh, and uh, escalating to the massive interventions during the recent crisis. Now, uh, I said that the Fed did play an emergency lending role, but that it wasn't a classical lender of last resort role, so now I need to explain the difference. According to the classical lender of last resort doctrine, which uh, goes back, is usually attributed to uh, uh, Walter Badgett, uh, who expounded it in his famous book, Lombard Street. And, uh, and I should mention that Badgett is spelled, as I've probably done before, I apologize for my educated listeners, but it's B-A-G-E-H-O-T. That's right. Which looks and like Bagahoe, but it's that's not. That's right. That's Badgett. Badgett. <laughs> and Badgett was uh, the, the second and most famous editor of The Economist magazine back in the 1870s, and there's still a Badgett column in The Economist, I believe. Uh, and uh, in any event, what Badgett said in response to crises in, in the English banking system, a series of crises, was that the Bank of England had a public responsibility to do something that it hadn't been doing up to that point, which was to see to it that uh, it, uh, external drains of specie uh, did not result in its clamping down on credit, but rather that it kept the flow of credit going to the private sector while raising its interest rates to stem the outflow of gold. And so that's what you mean by specie, right? Yes, species, gold or silver. Right. And so uh, uh, Badgett was making a recommendation for the English banking system, but it's important to note that in doing so, he also very explicitly said that the English system was deeply structurally flawed, and it was structurally flawed because it had a central bank. Uh, if it hadn't been for the presence of this central bank, which was capable of mismanaging money in a way that would ultimately trigger external drains of, of gold or specie, uh, there wouldn't have been any need for uh, advising the central bank to act in a more publicly responsible manner. And uh, indeed, Badgett expressly points to the Scottish, relatively free Scottish system of the time. It was not as free as it had been before Peel's Act of 1845. He points to the Scottish system as an ideal system and very, makes it very clear that in that kind of uh, decentralized monetary system, you don't need a lender of last resort. <laughs> okay, anyway, uh, a lender of last resort, according to Badgett, if you're stuck with a central bank, is a central bank that lends freely at high rates of interest, but only to solvent firms during times of crisis. So that's what a classical lender of last resort does. Now, if you so, look at the Fed's record after 1933, or really, on, hang on one sec, George. Yeah. I just want to just clarify that. Mm -hmm. So the idea would be that if I made, as a bank, if I made a lot of horrible loans. And as a result, when people showed up to get their money, I didn't have as much as I thought I'd have on hand to pay them out, mm -hmm. to the interest I'd promised. Uh, and I go to the central bank and say, you know, I just need a little bit of, of, of liquidity here because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little short this month. Well, if you're short this month because you've made a lot of bad loans and bad decisions, Badgett would say, don't lend the money. If it would just be bad luck, not bad luck's not the right word, but random 
more people a lot of people showed up this month for their for their money and I just don't have enough to cover it but but I'm solvent meaning the expected flow over time is going to be large enough the income is large enough to cover the outflow then a loan is okay right that's that right. that's what that's the distinction and it's a very crucial microeconomic distinction and budget had sound microeconomics uh, as a basis for what he was recommending it was not that the central bank should try to save or bail out insolvent institutions, that is, institutions whose assets before they experienced runs were worth more than their liabilities. This job of the lender of last resort was to prevent spillovers from uh, the failure of insolvent institutions or from international outflows from bringing down otherwise solvent institutions by making sure those solvent institutions don't fail for lack of liquid reserves. And I just want to mention we have Lombard Street available at the Library of Economics and Liberty. We'll put a link up to it uh, yes, on the site. And that's Badgett's classic uh, treatment of this question. Yes, and if you read the last page of that, uh, you'll see where Badgett very expressly says that what he's doing is recommending what we today would call a second-best solution to the problem of crises in England. The first-best solution would be some form of free banking. In any event, the Fed's record has been one of persistently violating Badgett's rule to lend only to solvent institutions and let the insolvent ones fail uh, so that we have an efficient uh, market situation. A situation where people are responsible for their actions and pay a price if they act recklessly. Yes, and, and of course, the reason it's crucial is not only that you just throw good money after bad when you bail out uh, pre-run insolvent institutions, uh, but you also create a moral hazard problem. Yep. And uh, that moral hazard problem can itself become one of the more potent causes of irresponsible lending. So look what's happened, what the Fed has done. It bailed out uh, Franklin National. And then in the it had 70s? In the 70s. 1970s. And Franklin National was uh, insolvent when the Fed bailed them out, when it made last resort, resort loans to it. Did they know that? Yes, they had good reason for for. for suspecting it, deeply suspecting it, let's say. Um, then what tends to happen is every time the Fed does that, it raises the ante because of moral hazard, and there will inevitably be an even bigger failure from insolvency when uh, this process happens. So along comes Continental Illinois, 1984. which was also insolvent. Almost, There's no question that it was insolvent. Uh, few could have doubted it uh, at the time. And I just want to mention, you know, we, I did a long monologue podcast on the current financial crisis where the first half of that is on this, this issue of the encouraging moral hazard. We'll put a link up to that as well. But the, the point I want, to say, I want to soften my question from earlier, I, I challenged George, I, I challenged you to, to hi, well, did they know they were insolvent? The, the key thing I think in these, at least the, one I, the ones I know a little bit about, it's not of course, they didn't delve into every single loan in, in every part of the books, but they knew they'd made a bunch of bad loans. They knew they weren't going well. They knew they were in trouble because those loans were not 
uh, paying as the way they had were supposed to. But in addition, the justification for the these rescues, and they were rescues of the creditors of of these institutions. That's right. The justification was not oh well they just need a little bit of time. It was oh if they fail. The systemic problem is going to be too horrible. They, they didn't pretend that they were solvent. It's that's not right. so they much that they, they didn't claimed, care. They didn't they, care. They, that's <laughs> right. They appealed uh, for the first time in the case of Continental Illinois to what's since come known as the too big to fail doctrine. And um, this doctrine was uh, supposedly a reason for ignoring Badgett's uh, microeconomically sound advice. Uh, because uh, the spillovers would be yeah, too big. Sure. On the face of it, first of all, Russ, it makes little sense. If if big spillovers are what you're worried about, then big support for the uh, still liquid, uh, still sorry, still solvent firms is what's called for. There's no reason to bail out any firm because of big spillover effects that its failure might cause if those spillover effects can be avoided by Badgett's means of making sure there's ample liquidity provision for all the still-solvent firms in the market. Moreover, too big to fail has always been a lie in every instance in which it has been possible after the fact to look at what would have happened. In the case of Continental Illinois, there were the usual uh, gloom and doom uh, statements by the authorities about what would happen to the rest of the economy if it failed, but eventually it was determined uh, by George Kaufman that uh, only two banks would have lost more than half their capital in the aftermath of the fail failure of uh, Continental Illinois if there had been no no uh, uh, support for its creditors. The same uh, thing happened with long-term capital management. 1998. Yes, um, and uh, and there... There was also a private rescue uh, alternative that uh, the Federal Reserve authorities essentially short-circuited uh, with a sweeter deal. Although in that case, the, the, I want to just clarify the facts. The Fed did not rescue uh, the creditors of long-term capital. They orchestrated a rescue by private. They orchestrated private. a rescue by private firm. It That's was right. semi-coercive though. It was Semi-coercively yeah, it was, and it was instead of another rescue that would have taken place – my point is that the case of long-term capital management, no more than that of Continental Illinois or Franklin National, uh, none of those justified any sort of departure from Badgett's principles. And I do not believe that the departures in the recent crisis from Badgett's rules, and they have been even more uh, uh, dramatic, have been any more justified. Well, let me challenge your systemic risk argument. Um, you argued that that uh, it the best case you can make is that you should oh, – if you're worried about systemic risk, you should offer liquidity to the solvent banks. But isn't the argument the following? So let's say I'm, I'm a um, – you, you said, for example, that when Continental Illinois had it failed, had its creditors not been bailed out, uh, two lenders to Continental Illinois, two people who had – held promises from Continental Illinois, they would have gone bankrupt, two other banks. They would have lost more than half their capital. So the question is, you know, were they solvent or not? And you're saying they weren't – those two weren't solvent, right? But isn't it possible that 
if enough banks had lent money, if they were so interconnected, and this is the argument. I hate it, by the way. I hate this argument, and I'll, maybe we'll talk about it. But the, the argument you hear about the, the current crisis, so many banks were interconnected. So many, uh, say, for example, so many uh, institutions had lent or were holding commercial uh, overnight loans, repo loans uh, of Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers that when they went – had Bear Stearns been allowed to – to fail, meaning had their creditors not been bailed out, so many creditors then would have gone bankrupt, and in turn, others who were expecting those guys to pay them would not be able to receive. So the whole system is kind of insolvent. No one bank is insolvent, perhaps, by its own decisions, but the this domino effect would occur. What, what's your response to that argument? My response say is it very well. Sorry. that it is an assertion without uh, evidence. And uh, we're, we are expected to take it as a matter of faith. And uh, uh, as with the boy who cried wolf, we, we know from the past assertions of that type that uh, they have been untrue. It wasn't true of uh, Continental Illinois. wasn't true of LTCM. It wasn't true, of course, Lehman Brothers was allowed to fail. And uh, the spillover effects from that turned out to be surprisingly minor as Peter Wallison has shown. Um, so, uh, I'm not so sure about that. It's hard to know because the, well, one, of, one the, of the failures, one of the results of that, uh, I, I don't have any problem with, with – I think it's unclear. Certainly if, if Bear Stearns had been allowed to go under, uh, there, it's, the effects of a Lehman collapse would have been different because once Bear Stearns creditors were rescued, that encouraged people to think that Lehman would be rescued as well. So I, I'm agnostic about what the impact – what we learned from the impact of Lehman's collapse, but you have to concede the fact that there was a great deal of, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, a great deal of unease when Lehman went under because of, say, money market funds, which had lent Lehman money, uh, which they shouldn't have. It's absurd. I think they lent the money because Bear Stearns had been uh, rescued in search of higher yield. They lent money to Lehman, and that when in the aftermath of Lehman's collapse, one of the things that happened was the Fed, to my unhappiness, but that's what they did. They they backstop the money market funds, right. and and that so we don't really know the full impact. I think of the Lehman collapse, but I would argue that it doesn't tell us a lot. Well, actually, Russ, we have to be very careful here. There are two questions here. One is uh, the too big to fail question of whether the interconnections were such that the insolvency of Lehman meant that other firms were bound to become insolvent if it failed. And on that score, uh, I don't think the spillover effects were, in fact, substantial. The other kind of spillover effect is the kind Badgett was arguing central banks should prevent, and that is where panic generated by one firm's failure, one insolvency, leads to uh, a run-on or a shortage of liquidity for uh, other otherwise solvent institutions. That's what seems to have happened to all of the money market funds with the single exception of Reserve Primary. Reserve Primary really, really was insolvent. And it once again, Badgett would say, then let Reserve Primary fail, or not fail in this case. Money market funds didn't, it, it wasn't a question of failure, it was a question of breaking the buck. Which that means, led, which that, means, what's that? Explain. Oh, not being able to pay a hundred cents on the dollar uh, to the uh, 
uh, the investors. Uh, investors. So yeah. people who would bought money market funds on the presumption – it's a strange presumption, but it's what we have yeah. because of the habits and the, and the monetary and the right. regulatory environment. The, the presumption that your capital is un – is totally safe, and totally it turns safe. out it wasn't. It's no, not, it's and not catastrophic. Fact, is <laughs> yes, and this is not a matter of failure because the fund doesn't have any uh, liabilities that are fixed. It just its liability consists of paying what the uh, what the assets are yeah. worth. So, uh, uh, reserve primary broke the buck. There's no evidence that any other money market fund was going to break the buck, uh, let alone go go broke, uh, and uh, and therefore. To the extent that you had a liquidity crisis affecting the other funds, uh, the argument isn't that the Fed shouldn't have taken action on their behalf. It was simply that that's not a case reason for having let uh, not let Lehman itself fail. But then, what, what? How would you categorize the um, famous meeting where Hank Paulson called in something like twenty of the nation's largest uh, bank banks, the CEOs of those banks, and said? I'm giving you a lot of money right now. You have to take it. Yes. Here's a little slip of paper to sign for it, and I'm giving it to you. And, you, and he argued, of course, at the time that that was, again, a, a way of, of reducing any liquidity constraints on these banks. They were all forced to take it on the grounds that that way we wouldn't know if any of them were insolvent uh, or illiquid, right? If the, the worry was, or at least the claim to worry was, is that if, we, if it was voluntary – the banks that took it would then be viewed as their as candidates for failure, and there'd be a run on them. What's your well, take on that episode? I think that's probably correct. And what Berdanke and uh, uh, was worried about, what Polson was worried about, was a repeat of what happened uh, in the back in the thirties and thirty two when the RFC was forced to disclose who it was lending to, and uh, this supposedly contributed to to runs on the uh, uh, banks receiving funds from it. Though actually the evidence for that has been questioned, it appears not to have been so severe as has sometimes been claimed. In any event, what would Badgett say about this? I would say the same thing he would. Uh, the point is, if we have a lot of good banks still uh, that will not fail and therefore don't want this support, uh, what we have here is an arrangement designed to protect insolvent institutions. Uh, partly by making sure no one can tell they're insolvent even as they are being bailed out. And uh, I don't see the rationale for that. Wouldn't, wouldn't the claim be that there could be an illiquid but solvent institution that when asked – An illiquid institution uh, uh, need not uh, uh, fear that there would be any stigma from uh, borrowing uh, from the Fed and uh it's only the ones that uh, 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 uh and but but such an institution normally with adequate liquidity provision to the open market would also have been able to to borrow from those banks that did not suffer from a lack of liquidity now the op- the open market situation after layman's failure or specifically after the reserve primary breaking of the buck was very bad uh and the fed needed to provide uh, open market liquidity at that time because the interbank market seemed to be seizing up. But it's important to realize that it just didn't it didn't do that. <laughs> it uh it was too busy uh making sterilized loans to insolvent institutions to uh to attend to the illiquidity of the general market. What should it have done? Well I think it should have uh, aggressively 
engaged in aggressive open market operations without any sterilization, uh, instead of lending to particular insolvent institutions. And, uh, and I agree with, uh, 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 Buter, who, uh, argues that, uh, it should have considered making open market purchases of a broader range of assets than usual. There's no, no, nothing in Badgett that says that central banks should only buy treasuries. Uh, of course, Badgett wrote at a time when they made loans instead of engaging in open market operations. But um, uh, a relaxation of the treasuries only policy, uh, one that would have allowed the Fed to purchase other kinds of, of assets in the open market, private assets, but not for more than they were actually worth, would uh, have been uh, beneficial at that time. Just one last comment on this this question, the contemporary example. I, I I think the argument that the Fed would respond with to your criticism is that uh, we were at a point where many of the assets these firms were holding were mortgage-backed securities. Their prices were in uh, either in free fall or more – I think more importantly, quote, hard to assess the value of these assets. And therefore, it was hard to know who was liquid, illiquid, and who was insolvent. Buter has an answer to that question as well, Russ. A uh, very interesting proposal he made uh, some time ago in the in the course of an argument that there is ever, never any need to for the Fed to do other than engage in open market operations and then let the market determine where the money, uh, the liquidity went. And he uh, says that if you if you design the uh, open market operation with a Dutch auction or something like that, you can uh, pretty much uh, allow the the auction to determine the value of the secure of the securities and uh, do so in a way that'll avoid the moral hazard problem so there 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 is a way that the fed could have opened up open market purchases even to those very questionable assets uh without exposing itself or ultimately the taxpayers to risk of loss by uh, buying them at artificially inflated prices and one last comment. Uh, my view is that even if all these arguments of the other side or the, the people who wanted more inter- intervention, even if they're right, even if there is all this interlocking systemic risk, once we accept that, as you point out, the, the evidence for it is rather – it's not just weak. It's never provided. There's none. It's just asserted that that, that's right. that, that there was a systemic risk because these guys all interact with each other. Suppose that's true, though. Suppose it really is true that the first domino knocks them all down. Once you say that we can't let that happen, you basically create a welfare program for Wall Street that allows them to perpetually enlarge themselves with borrowed money, inflate the size of their institutions, make riskier and riskier bets, and pay themselves large salaries because they look like they're doing well until it collapses. But they get rescued, and they move on and do it again. That's right. It's a vicious cycle, and there's no way it's going to do anything but get worse. Or you have to uh, uh, resort to such draconian regulation of the banking system to offset the effects of of uh, of moral hazard that you end up without uh, a, a financial system that can cater to the the financial needs of an advanced uh, capitalist hey, economy. You've got a public utility. Yes, uh, and, that, and there's there's another there's another reform that's relevant here. The 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 of course allowing firms to fail the the spillover effects that that has 
depend, of course, on the way the, that the failed firms are, uh, are resolved. Bankruptcy, uh, in principle, if it's done quickly enough, can actually be a perfectly good way of minimizing uh, the spillover effects. Right. Sure. Now, uh, uh, it has been noted correctly that, uh, uh, that, that bankruptcy procedures can be too, too slow-moving to meet uh, the need for avoiding spillovers in, in the case of financial failures. But here I think the, uh, the English proposal, the legislation uh, that requires uh, larger financial firms, the ones that might be considered too big to fail, although nobody, nobody from the Fed or elsewhere has told us where the cutoff is, yeah. to create so-called uh, living wills. These are uh, specific plans that the institutions themselves come up with that would uh, amount to uh, uh, procedures for expediting uh, bankruptcy uh, by specifying exactly what should happen in the event that they uh, are insolvent. This is a very sensible reform, and uh, that's what should be done uh, in the United States. So let's see. Now, who would think that's a good idea? You and me, okay? Yeah. And maybe some of our listeners would say, yeah, wouldn't it be better to speed – if bankruptcy – the delay in bankruptcy makes it – hard to let firms fail, why don't we speed that process up or create some incentives to do it earlier, even some regulations? The alternative would be let's keep the current system that continually bails out people who've made bad loans and large, rich, giant institutions. Hmm. Now, where would the political will come? Uh, which, how, how would that kind of play out? And so I just want to remind our listeners that – and we're going to come back to this – that there's a – a tendency to think about, you know, what's the best policy? That's not the, what actually happens. What actually happens is the stew, the ferment of the political sausage factory. And in that world, the, um, the banks get a lot more say than you and me. Um, and unfortunately, there are a lot of economists who benefit from the size and power of the Fed and its influence on Wall Street. And they, too, think it's a, it's a good idea to avoid systemic risk and, and not go through this messy, slow bankruptcy procedure. But I just want to remind listeners that that's, um, there's some political incentives there for which policy emerges rather than which the best one is. It might not be the same thing. Yeah, okay, yeah. so we, we spent a lot of time on this, which was fine. It's really interesting. Let's move on to the other aspect of the Fed that – is uh, important and people argue about, which is the smoother of the business cycle. So the claim is, you know, the 19th century was full of recessions and depressions, uh, whereas the 20th century had that little thing in the 30s that was awful. And until recently, the, the business cycle had been tamed. We had the great moderation. And if you just look at the data, it's clear that the Fed uh, has seems to have smoothed things. When I interviewed Milton Friedman in 2006, he argued that, yes, you know, and I, I think many people still believe this, the, the general smoothing of monetary growth that the, that the Federal Reserve has lear had learned to do post-World War II uh, led to better macroeconomic performance. What's, the, what's your verdict on that? Well, my verdict is that, uh, uh, that uh, the present state – the present state of research is such that we no longer can uh, can view things in that more optimistic way. Already, when when you interviewed uh, uh, Milton Friedman, uh, revisionist work had been done mostly by Christina Romer, but also by other economists, and some has been done since uh, 2006. 
that has drastically changed our uh, understanding of the volatility of output and also the length and severity of recessions before the Fed's establishment in 1913. And the bottom line is that the new research suggests that the post-war business cycle has not been less severe overall than the pre-Fed business cycle. That is, contractions have not been less frequent. They haven't been shorter. They haven't been less severe. And output has not been uh, substantially less volatile. Now, that's for the whole post-war period, Russ. It doesn't deny the the existence of a great moderation. Uh, Concerning the great moderation, however, first of all... This would be the period from roughly... 1982 uh, to 2003, I should say. To 2007. Yes, uh, and lasting through the whole Greenspan uh, era. Right, there was a considerable reduction in uh, the volatility of output. Nobody denies that. I certainly don't. Uh, And in the severity of uh, cycles of downturns. But two facts need to be pointed out here that are very important. First, uh, the most recent data suggested the Great Moderation has ended. So whatever was going on there, if it was an improvement in monetary policy, and I'll come to uh, whether that was the case or not, well, apparently the improvement is over uh, uh, because uh, the moderation uh, is not is no longer evident in, in the data. And that shouldn't surprise anyone, knowing what we've been through in the last few years. More importantly, though, uh, just a, it's just an outlier. It's one, you know, just one is, data point. Yes, uh, you mean the current? Yeah, well, it's just a mistake. Uh, it just they didn't, you know. <laughs> we'll, next time, we won't happen because we, we've learned from it. Yes, but but uh, the other thing I wanted to Sarcasm mention off. is that uh, since the Great Moderation, uh, there has been uh, a large body of research devoted to asking what's what the cause of this moderation, or now I suppose we should put it as, what was the cause of the moderation? And that research has steadily chipped away at the early presumption that improved monetary policy was behind it. Uh, That research has done one of two things. It has either attributed the great moderation to a decline in the number of external shocks to which the economy happened to be exposed. Some people call this the good luck hypothesis. In other words, this was just a period when when we were lucky because we weren't exposed to uh, 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 as many fundamental disturbances as had been the case in the past. The the and or the research has said, well, there have been structural changes, but it isn't improved monetary policy. Other changes in the structure of the economy have been behind the great moderation. Uh, for example, or dynamism, uh, or trade, yes, or globalization, financial innovations. Uh, changes in demography, uh, changes in the management of inventories. There's been a host of factors that have been identified statistically uh, as contributing to this great moderation. And the same studies that have emphasized these factors have also tested the alternative hypothesis of improved monetary policy and reject that as uh, uh, a likely cause. So let me ask you a tough question. So you know, if you're out there listening right now, you think, yeah, that, that's right. The Fed stinks. Um, we have a lot of listeners who feel that way. I'm, I'm sympathetic to that viewpoint. So I'm going to you know, 
I'm going to challenge my own biases here. Uh, isn't it true that any of these exercises in trying to assess the quality of the Fed's performance, whether other factors were alive, l- let's admit the fact that the macroeconomy is a very complex beast, and it's a beast. It's an organism. It's alive. It's an emergent phenomenon. It's not uh, easily steered. We don't measure it very accurately. Trying to compare the Fed's performance for 1913 to the present to the pre-1913 years is really kind of silly, you could argue, because the data that we have available pre-1913 stinks. It's horrible. Uh, It's messy. And inevitably, what we're going to do here is confirm our biases. If you hate the Fed, you're going to find arguments that say, well, it was really good luck. It was other, as you say, structural changes. If you like the Fed, you'll say, no, no, no. And I'll, I'll play John Taylor here. Uh, and I said a minute ago that this current mess is an outlier, and I, I said it with a little bit of sarcasm. But you can argue, and he does, and he's, he makes some good arguments, that if if the Fed had followed the behavior it had followed previously, we wouldn't have had this episode. The great moderation might have continued. Aren't we just indulging our uh, our prejudices when we have these kind of arguments? Well, uh, sure. Uh, prejudice uh, always is a factor in driving the kind of uh, research people do. I don't think you can ever get away from that. Uh, people start out with priors, and uh, they uh, they pursue those priors. Let me just say that your question, uh, though, about uh, whether we really can make useful comparisons between the Fed uh, in recent decades, especially, and in, in, uh, the system that existed before 1930, it's, it's an a- absolutely essential question. Let me try to answer it by explaining what what our research uh, in the paper is trying to do. Uh, if it's motivated by the following observation, if you were to ask almost any economist today whether the Fed is worth keeping, whether it's been successful or not, you would have gotten a positive answer. And that answer would have been based on uh, conventional, let's call it conventional wisdom about the empirical record before and after the Fed. That is, most, most people are perfectly happy to defend the Fed without performing a fancy, <laughs> elaborate, and perhaps even uh, impossible counterfactual exercise to determine whether their, their optimism or their uh, faith in the Fed is justified. What our, what our paper is trying to do is to say, look, uh, the, the, uh, the, the available evidence out there doesn't provide a, uh, a, a, a case uh, an initial case showing that the Fed uh, clearly has made things better. So give us some of that evidence. What's that? Give us a little of that evidence so well, we can. Uh, it's evidence uh, based on uh, the most uh, recent statistical studies concerning what has happened to the th- uh, variability of output, the number of banking panics, the uh, uh, length and duration, the length and uh, frequency of recessions. The uh, uh, lender of last resort conduct of the Fed, the price level behavior, the predictability of inflation and the price level, all of those statistics don't show a clear improvement. And that, that is not saying that, therefore, we know that another system would have worked better. And we, we carefully resist making the claim in the paper that any other particular system would definitely have worked better. Our limited claim is simply this, that based on the available studies today, there's no reason for thinking that the Fed 
uh, has been successful or that no system could possibly be better, and we need to do more systematic research about alternatives. We need to stop being complacent about the Fed. So that's, it's, a, it's, a burden, it's a burden of proof argument. That, that Given that most people's priors are the 19th century was hell, and since 1913 it's been great except for the, the Great Depression and the current – you know, it's kind of a funny argument um, – you know, but the, but the 19th century had had some really bad depressions. Um, depression of 1894. Again, I don't think we have as good a level of detailed data about it, but it was a very bad depression. So the standard view is, yeah, it's been horrible. What you're suggesting is that actually, when you actually really look at the data, that whatever its its accuracy is, the best data we have, it's actually the burdens on the Fed defenders to make the case. That is that a good summary? Yes, it is. Uh, we're, it essentially amounts to saying that there's no uh, prima facie uh, uh, reason, uh, justification for thinking that we should stick to our present arrangement. So I want to turn in a, in a, in a second to, to the alternative arrangements, what we might consider as alternatives to the Fed or restraints we might put on the Fed if we continue with it. But I want to ask an interme- intermediate question first, which is um, – you know, as economists, we're trained to think of the Fed as a um, uh, kind of like the handles uh, that run the taps in a bathtub. You know, there's some cold water, there's some hot water. You want the level the of the bathtub to go up. You put you turn the handles on. You might have a couple handles to decide whether it's hot or cold water. But you have those tools to make the water go up. You want it to go down. You pull the plug out a little bit for a while, and you drain it. You could even control the rate of drain. Those are sort of the ways. We have a, I would call it uh, a technocratic view of the Fed as a tool. Um, If we step back for a minute, and this is a little bit unpleasant, but I think important, if if we weren't so tied to the Fed as a, because we're all interested in monetary policy as as economists, why would we ever think it would work that way? And again, I'm not going to suggest that that Ben Bernanke's a bad man or that Alan Greenspan was a bad man. They're all. I assume human beings with with flaws and high IQs, but other than that, normal human beings with 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 the normal human nature that we all have. Uh, wouldn't a more fruitful model of the Fed be a public choice model that says I would never think that they're going to run the taps and the drain uh, and their other choices, how they hand out the towels, uh, like they do in a textbook that says how it could work? That would be that would be silly. I would normally expect them to be a political institution to respond to economic actors that that would have a big incentive to influence their decisions, which would be the banks. And why wouldn't I come to a conclusion that what the Fed does most of the time is help the banks at the expense of the rest of us? Um, how do you think that model, which is very alien, I think, to the way most economists think about the Fed, they, they think of it as this, this running the bathroom uh, metaphor – but if you took that slightly less attractive, almost sinister, it's not a conspiracy. It's not like the banks call up Greenspan or Bernanke or any of the other previous chairs and say, hey, the bag of money will be on the stairs. Make sure you pass out a lot to us tomorrow. Uh, it's not that kind of conspiracy. It's just that the general political forces encourage the Fed to keep Wall Street happy, to keep the large banks happy because they influence how the president – uh, behaves. They make donations to their parties, and and as a result, uh, the Fed chair wants to make the president happy and the Congress, et cetera, et cetera. So, what do you think of that more um, perhaps realistic, or maybe it's cynical? 
No, Russ, I think that is a realistic view of the Fed. I tend in my own work on the Fed to, to, to give it uh, the benefit of the doubt and to emphasize more the informational challenges that make it highly uh, difficult, not just difficult, but practically impossible for it to operate the taps in the ideal manner that, uh, that textbooks suggest. Uh, but I think, in fact, to the reality is more of the public choice reality that uh, that you have in mind. But for both reasons, the Fed is simply not ever going to behave the way the textbooks pretend it and other central banks behave. But you know, my focus is on economists. You talked about we're talking about these textbooks. What appalls me is the way economists idealize the Fed and other central banks, writing in textbooks about uh, them as if they actually performed the way they might ideally perform and indeed in the way they could only perform in, in, in the presence of information that's actually not at all available to them. So um, what, I, uh, what I really would like to do is change the way economists talk about central banking and monetary policy. Uh, and I don't, uh, at this point, you know, I don't expect to to see them go whole hog for a public choice uh, view of these institutions of the sort that uh, you find plausible and I also find plausible. But I would at least like to see them uh, uh, handle them according to the way they have performed uh, 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 in reality to some extent. That is to stop portraying them in textbooks as if they behaved Ideally, when we have all the evidence we need to see that they are, after all, uh, constantly making often very, very severe mistakes. Well, I, I want to tell a brief story about the informational challenge, which I think really is a huge problem. Uh, and then I want to close with talking about the alternatives. If you have time to go a little bit longer than, than we had thought, do you have a few extra minutes? Yes, sure. Okay, so uh, when I was in chemistry class, uh, this would be, I think, Tenth uh, or eleventh grade, maybe it was science. Maybe it was earlier than that. But we had this. We had a, a lab room, and there were two faucets in the lab room, uh, and attached to each faucet was a hose. You may remember this from from science. And so the hoses were long. You would take the hoses and you would you would fill up beakers and and other scientific apparatus equipment to to do scientific experiments. There was one kid in the class. Don't remember his name, but what he liked to do. He was a mischievous boy. What he liked to do was to get the hoses all tangled up in the basin of the sink. So you'd be holding the end of your hose. It turned out, though, that the handle that it was attached to was not the one you thought it was. It was the other one. So the water would be coming out too fast in your handle, in your hose. So you'd tell the guy, or you'd reach for yourself, and you'd try to turn it down. turned out what you're doing is turning down the other guy's hose, who was using his hose to fill up his beaker, and when he saw that the volume of the water coming out of his hose was going down, he'd take his handle, he'd turn it up. Of course, he was turning up your hose. And so we had what we'd call an, you know, an unstable feedback loop. Um, and that's, of course, what the Fed has done many, many times. It thinks it has tight money, and so it loosens. But actually, it's got loose money, and it's doing making things worse. At other times, it thinks there's loose money, so it tightens, when in fact, there's tight money already. And we've had Scott Sumner on and others talk about this, but it seems to me that the informational problem, if we keep with the bathtub metaphor, you know, you don't realize that the drain is open. 
you see uh, the water uh, doing something. You don't, you're not sure what the level is of the water. It's murky in the bathroom. The lights are off sometimes, and you're not even sure whether you're turning on the sink or the bathtub tap. And so I, I do think that just on the informational side alone, the, the ambiguity about the data that the Fed uses and the uh, disconnect between how it has to talk about it as if it's totally in charge at all times mm-hmm. is, uh, you're right, would be a relevant thing for textbooks to talk about and and nightly news reports as well. Absolutely. I think if people really understood uh, how the Fed uh, makes its decisions, uh, the finger-in-the-wind sort of uh, manner in which it is forced to determine uh, the course of monetary developments that can have uh, overwhelmingly important effects on the performance of the whole economy they would be shocked, shocked because it is not uh, uh, like a smoothly operating machine. And I, I, I agree entirely that this is not a manner of matter of not having the right people in charge. It's just the way the system is. It, uh, it does uh, perhaps uh, do uh, 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 the best uh, it can uh, on some occasions, Perhaps it doesn't merely cater to special interests in the banking industry or to the whim of uh, the administration. But even so, it's, the tools it has available to it are deeply uh, flawed or limited in uh, their ability to deliver monetary stability, and we need to think about a better mechanism. And I, I should mention that you know when I talk about the cynical view or public choice view that they're helping their friends, um, their politically powerful friends, I'm not referring, say, to the a particular uh, quarter's change in the uh, federal funds rate. I'm thinking about its discretionary activity out when it goes and orchestrates the long-term capital management bailout or encourages the feds to do other, the treasury to do other things that. Uh, that I think are extremely destructive. Let's move on to those alternatives. So uh, we could imagine two types of alternatives. One type is to is to change the institution in it, in, in it utterly, which is let's replace the Fed with something else. The other would be to restrain the Fed in particular ways. Let's talk about uh, changes, the uh, utter large changes. So what what might we do if we if we eliminated the Fed? What would be the alternative arrangements that we would have, uh, if any? What would we need to do? What would we need to worry about if we got rid of a central bank? Well, right. So um, there's a there's a fine line. In fact, a, a impossible to to define line between a reform that gets rid of uh, the Fed and a reform that that doesn't. Uh, it, it becomes a semantic issue at some point. But let me say that is if we if we are to uh, keep a fiat money. Right, that is a money the value of which doesn't depend on convertibility in some commodity like gold. Then, so uh, fiat meaning just paper. Yes. Then we then we have to have a means for guaranteeing the scarcity of this stuff, which is not naturally scarce. Paper is cheap to print. Yes, absolutely. So, in a minimal sense, having a fiat money means having a public monetary authority, if only in order to safeguard uh, the paper stuff from being uh, 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 augmented and uh, to augmented to an extent that causes it to, to, to steadily lose value. Um, now, uh, or unsteadily, or erratically loses yes, even worse. Yes. 
So, uh, you know, at the very least, when you have a fiat standard, you need an institution that makes sure that you're not printing oodles of the stuff that, 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 that performs at least that minimal task. And you need to make sure that uh, private uh, uh, agents aren't making replicas of the stuff either. Um, if that counts as a central bank already, then you can't get rid of a central bank. Uh, uh, you can only do so, according to that very, uh, very, very uh, uh, basic definition, uh, by having a commodity-based standard like a gold standard. In that case, there's absolutely no need for a central authority uh, to guarantee the scarcity and positive value of the monetary unit. Although, of course, as people claim in justifying the Fed uh, – uh, a sudden discovery of gold uh, could arbitrarily change the amount of money in the system, and without a Fed, you wouldn't be able to offset that. So yes. what do you say about that? Uh, I say this is a very good example of how people, and e- economists included, uh, uh, fail to distinguish between some ideal performance of a central bank, some ideally managed paper money, and reality, because – the relevant comparison should be not between how much the price level might change in a gold standard arrangement because of supply shocks and how much it would change if you had an ideal central bank making sure to manage the fiat money correctly. Uh, it should be between what the gold standard is likely to generate in the way of price level instability and what central banks seem likely to generate. Do you know... the? The, the worst examples, the, the more, sorry, the most extreme examples of gold supply shocks that people usually come up with, I don't know if there actually have been more extreme ones, are the gold rush in uh, the, the late 1840s in the United States and the great price revolution of the 16th century when uh, all the gold was found in the New World and started finding its way uh, to Europe. Well, both <laughs> leading to inflation. That, yes, yeah. right. If you if you take the inflation rates that uh, occurred in those episodes and and uh, annualize them, they're trivial. They're less than the Fed's current <laughs> supposed implicit inflation target of two percent, and and much less than the three percent that they're now talking about as a as a target, at least for inflation expectations. People simply don't know their history of uh, of prices. If they did, they would know that there's never been a uh, a supply shock uh, that c- caused uh, an inflation uh, uh, rate uh, under a commodity, a gold or silver standard that we would consider to be today a a, a, a high rate of inflation. Well, what about deflationary arguments? So the argument would be. Uh, either through private decision-making or government decision-making and possibly, uh, as Doug Irwin talked about on a podcast recently, he's done some interesting research on the way France uh, hoarded gold in the late 1920s. That imposed costs on other countries. They they kept their deal. They didn't uh, inflate in response to that. They were stuck with the gold standard, and as a result, they threw themselves into depression. Um what about that argument that, that a sudden, unexpected deflation, which can occur under a gold standard, can be devastating? Well, first of all, regarding uh, Doug Irwin's work, 
let's bear in mind that he's talking about an episode that took place not under the classical gold standard, but under the interwar gold standard, which is a completely different beast. It was a jury-rigged setup that heavily depended on the central banks of the various, uh, especially former belligerent nations of World War I. Uh, it, it depended on them cooperating with each other, particularly uh, by uh, having them treat uh, claims against the Bank of England as, as, as if they were cash itself, instead of, uh, and allowing those claims to accumulate instead of routinely cashing them in for gold. Uh, the, the idea was to allow uh, England, uh, especially England, uh, to uh, get away with returning to its pre-war gold parity uh, in the 1920s without having to go through the massive deflation that would normally have been called for to restore that parity because uh, the English money stock and price level were much, much higher when it restored the parity than they uh, had been uh, for a given level of reserves prior to World War I. So you had this whole setup trying to run a gold standard on the cheap, depending on the Bank of France and other central banks to cooperate. And, and when the Bank of France stopped cooperating, it all came tumbling down. It was a house of cards. But why did they do that? Why didn't they stick with the pre-war gold standard that didn't require this cooperation? Was the, the, the worry was that England would bear too high a cost? And why was that? Well, England, uh, there, the only way you could have, England could have gone to the pre-war gold standard, uh, uh, but, uh, sorry, but it, it, that is a classical gold standard mechanism could have been restored in the 20s, but there were only two ways to do that. First, if you chose to go back to the pre-war definitions of the paper currencies, the pre-war gold convertibility or par values, then big deflation was necessary because the pre-war parities required pre-war price levels in the absence of special arrangements like the gold exchange standard aimed at economizing on gold, but which were also uh, subject to speculative collapse. Alternatively, and this would have been the more sensible approach, England and other countries could have let bygones be bygones. They could have reestablished a classical gold standard, but with new parities reflecting the reality yeah, of much higher price levels since World War I. That would seem to be the easy solution. That would have been the, the answer. Now, when Barry Eichengreen and others say that the gold standard caused the Great Depression, what they mean is, that the gold exchange standard collapsed and, and contributed to the general financial collapse. Uh, when they say that that uh, abandoning the gold standard was the only way out, they neglect the alternative of a classical gold standard with modified parities to reflect the reality of inflation post uh, World War One inflation. So is the yeah. So the idea was that. The w what role does the war itself play in this disruption, other than that it's, there's a pre and a, and a post? What, what, why did World War I disrupt? Is that because they, they couldn't make the normal transfers? What, what was going on there? Yeah, basically, uh, the belligerent countries, not all of them, but most of them, uh, wanted to resort to inflationary finance uh, to cover the, the, the expenses of the war. They wanted to spend more than they could spend 
uh, without uh, printing money. Uh, and to, to do that, uh, they uh, had to abandon the gold standard. So they went off the gold standard. The U.S. didn't go off entirely, but it did impose gold embargoes. On the other hand, it didn't inflate as much as the other countries. It did inflate a lot in uh, the, uh, the wartime period, but it was nothing compared to England and certainly nothing compared to Germany, right. uh, at least uh, Germany by 1923. So uh, it was wartime finance that was the, uh, led to the temporary abandonment of the gold standard and as I said, I think this, that unfortunately, it's, a gold standard works best if you really stick to it. But if you're going to abandon it and have massive inflation, then if you want to go back, and there are cogent reasons for going back, because the gold standard has undeniable advantages, then uh, um, uh, it may be prudent to go back, but with a different exchange value for the currency, a different par value in terms of gold. This uh, Britain was reluctant to do. It wanted, as it were, to have its cake and eat it too. Uh, and uh, other countries, uh, to a lesser extent, also uh, did not want to abandon their old gold parities. Um, and there were some good reasons for resisting that. But nevertheless, the ultimate consequence of their attempts to uh, restore something resembling the pre-World War I gold standard but without having to endure the price level adjustments that a true restoration of that standard would have required, uh, led to the creation of this house of cards known as the gold exchange standard that was very, very prone to collapse because it depended in a way that classical gold standard did not on central banks basically uh, practicing forbearance with uh, uh, other uh, uh, cre- uh, central banks uh, to which they were uh, creditors. Uh, maybe we'll come back and talk about that in more detail. It's obviously complicated, uh, and we're, we're running over time here. So I want to close with the following. In the paper, you talk about uh, some of these alternatives. You also talk about uh, we could imagine, as you say, it's somewhat of a semantic issue, but we could keep the Fed in place. We could require it to follow some sort of arbitrary rule as as Milton Friedman often advocated at different times, a, a steady growth rate of, of X percent, maybe two or three in, in high-powered money, uh, or a Taylor rule, and you talk about that in the paper, which would link federal funds rates to uh, changes in inflation and growth. The problem with all these, though, is they don't really solve the informational challenge you talked about earlier, which is you know, these are sort of textbook in the sense that they don't really have reliable measures as – at a point in time uh, of it, of what the real price level is doing or what the what high powered money is we no longer think of even that as the as the lever that the fed uses for what for a variety of reasons so what i what i'd like to ask you is in closing is this given those informational issues what structure alternative uh either running of the fed or elimination of the fed would you advocate that is let's put aside political feasibility for the moment, but that you think is consistent with the realities of the information challenge, uh, what might we do centrally in the United States with respect to money that would uh, make things better? Not perfect, better. Well, I think the key word here uh, is centrally. I think that the only way to avoid uh, major errors of monetary change uh, 
connected with informational deficiencies, uh, if not with political forces, is to decentralize the decision-making behind adjustments in the money supply, which means decentralizing the money supply itself. I've long been an advocate of restoring to the private marketplace responsibility for providing money and restoring it, therefore, not to any one particular private agency, but to a competitive system of money-creating institutions, a competitive free banking system. Uh, we, we, we have a system right now where all the eggs are in one basket. If the 12 members of the FOMC get it wrong, the whole country gets it wrong. Uh, the way we handled informational deficiencies in markets for things other than money is to make sure that we don't let one firm monopolize those markets uh, and uh, therefore make sure that we don't let the mistakes of any one firm translate into failure for the whole market in question. This is the way we should handle money so that we have different institutions making separate decisions regarding the management of their portions of the money supply and hope that uh, the failures will, to some considerable extent, be offsetting ones. Of course, this also depends on there being reason to assume that the systematic behavior of private money issuers uh, will be a behavior conducive to overall stability, and I think that the theory suggests that it can be. It's not going to work with a crummy banking system dependent on routine government bailouts and the expectation thereof, such as exists today in the United States. So the first step has to be to wean our system off from guarantees to create strong private banks uh, that are capable of taking charge of money creation and reducing our economy's dependence on a central authority as its source as its source of money or as the sole basis for the regulation of the total money stock. My guest today has been George Selgin. George, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.